Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 312 Abnormal Psychology with Professor Mark Hunter. I hope you listen and enjoy. Hello. Now we're in Unit 2 of Psychology 312, Abnormal Psychology. Again, I encourage you to refer to your textbook for more detailed information. This video is going to go over chapters 3 and 4, but it's going to be more of a summary and sort of an introduction. So I encourage you to refer to your textbook to have a more detailed understanding of these different topics. Let's now look at chapter 3, Clinical Assessment, Diagnosis, and Research in Psychopathology. So what do we mean when we say clinical assessment and diagnosis? What that refers to is the fact that if someone is being referred to a mental health professional for psychological uh, treatment, we first have to do an assessment. And this is where we look at a variety of different uh, questions regarding maybe things that have contributed to the psychological disorder. Some of this is done through a series of questions. Some of the questions the person answers about themselves. Sometimes the, um, the, uh, the professional will ask them the questions. Uh, they'll ask them about their situation, act, things that have happened maybe recently. They'll talk about maybe their family. And so they're trying to get as much information to can give them a better understanding of what's going on with the individual. Diagnosis is really trying to determine that those factors meet all the criteria for a specific psychological disorder. This includes uh, things like how long has this behavior lasted? And, and in the DSM-5, which lists these different criteria, um, how many of the, the, the possible criteria does this person meet? Um, so this, the DSM-5 is really a manual that is used by different psych, um, mental health professionals to really have a sense of standardization that when somebody is seen by a mental health professional in Mississippi or California or New York, that they're using the same criteria in order to come up with a diagnosis. So, um, Again, the first idea of doing this is through assessment, and it's a, usually the first interview, and it can be sort of like an informal kind of get-to-know-you kind of um, uh, event, and uh, it may, again, take on more behavioral uh, uh, observations where you're asking someone to be uh, to do some certain behaviors, and you're watching how they interact in that environment or interact with others. Uh, sometimes they'll ask the loved ones or the people who are close to that person, you know, to give their uh, impressions of what's going on as well. So there's a variety of different psychological tests that can be used for uh, assessment. Some of these are what referred to as projected tests. And these are things like you'll be given a picture and uh, it's usually uh, something that's drawn and it's kind of ambiguous and you're trying to figure out what's going on in this picture. Uh, the test 
textbook gives examples of that where someone sees a picture or you've probably seen the Rorschach ink blots where you uh, give a description of what you think is going on and so you're projecting your thoughts onto that picture. Um, sometimes it'll be like personality inventories where they'll give some statements and you'll say this is very much like me or like me or not like me or very much not like me and uh, so your answers to this are tabulated and gives an indication of uh, perhaps personality types. Um, so these um, sometimes it's done through intelligence testing and uh, to understand if someone's cognitive abilities, how they are in different situations. So um, the, um, it can also use uh, neuropsychological testing, sometimes neuroimaging, where it's like uh, fMRI is used to see if uh, what someone may be asked to, you know, to recite something or read something or try to solve a problem. And the, um, the imaging machine is indicating what parts of the brain are being activated while that uh, behavior is going on or that those thoughts are going on. Um, sometimes it measures things in the nervous system, our, our physical well-being and how well our nervous system reacts. So it can, uh, there's lots of different tools that can be used to try to make an assessment of someone's um, who has who may be suspected of having a psychopathology. So when they've done the assessment, they've got all this information, they're trying to make a, a diagnosis. And so the, um, they're using the DSM-5 to classify uh, this, these um, understanding behaviors, thoughts, or, or emotions and try to understand what's going on, which classification does this behavior best fall into. And so it's a, um, uh, it can be a, a, again, your book will show you lots of, you know, some examples of that. But uh, so based off what the information that the clinician gets through the assessment, then they're able to see how does that match up to what the DSM-5 says is a criteria for this um, psychopathology, this abnormal behavior. So again, um, there, um, so a lot of it has to do with certain understandings of what has been shown. And the DSM-5 is, again, the latest edition for the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Um, they will, I'm not sure when the next one will be out, but uh, they consistently and continually uh, try to have a, a better understanding of different things. Things that have been in an earlier edition may be not included in a uh, more sub, uh, latest edition. And sometimes uh, things that were not, aren't, you know, weren't really a disorder, early editions are indicated as disorder in later editions. So um, they take the uh, scientific understanding and trying to figure out things that um, would meet those criteria. Let me just give you an example. For example, for like uh, autism spectrum disorder, uh, you know, you may have heard the term Asperger's as a term used for sort of um, lower levels of autism spectrum disorder. Well, the DSM-5 does not use the term 
Asperger's any longer. So officially, we don't really have a, a diagnosis of Asperger's. We just have um, um, diagnosis of autism somewhere along the uh, autism spectrum. But that's just one example, and there's others. When you're doing research in psychopathology, like any research, you have a hypothesis. You've observed people who have this disorder, and you're trying to come up with an explanation of what might cause this disorder or what would be a good treatment for this disorder. Um, so you're trying to figure out what the nature of this disorder is, exactly what does this mean to have this disorder, what are the causes, and what would be the best treatment. Um, through the years, sometimes treatments that I thought were effective, we found out really aren't, and they've been uh, discarded or changed to something else. So this is, again, psychology is continually trying to revise itself and trying to have a better understanding of abnormal psychology. Um, there are varieties of different ways to, to do research. One way is what we refer to as uh, individual case study, meaning that this person has an abnormal behavior that's pretty rare, and there may not be that many people to study who have this, um, this type of, uh, of illness. And so where they don't have the, the luxury of having hundreds or thousands of people to interview, they just have one. And so they'll do a really in-depth study of that one individual. Um, now, that can help, but again, that's just about that individual. And um, so usually, of course, there's really no experiment um, done with this because you're, you're finding out about these people later on. Sometimes this is done with people who have actually been incarcerated um, due to their abnormal behavior. Um, Sometimes we do research by correlation, and you have heard it said many times in your class, uh, correlation does not mean causation. It just means that when one event happens, does another event happen uh, much of the time? So it doesn't really tell us that something causes something, but it says these two events seem to happen um, about the same time. Either one goes up and the other goes up, or one goes down, the other goes down, or one goes up and the other goes down. So um, using different uh, research techniques, you're able to try to factor out things that may have contributed to this and, and uh, beyond the scope of our course to, to understand this right now. But we're trying to see if, uh, if these correlations are seen in other populations. Um, is it males and females? Is it young uh, people? Is it people in middle age or senior adults? So you're looking at a variety of different situations. Um, research by experiment means that you're trying to control all the variables that could possibly have contributed to the, uh, this. Um, and so the researcher controls this and they're looking for the influence of an independent variable on the dependent variable. And then if you're able to show that, to maybe uh, to give indication that one variable causes another variable. So understanding the interaction between genetics and the environment um, 
we do this things like through family settings, people who are usually genetically connected, uh, but also raised in the same environment. Adoption studies, where you have children who may not be biologically your, um, you know, connected to you, but were raised in the same environment. Twin studies, where especially if one twin was raised in a different environment from the other. Um, and so these are different ways that researchers use to try to understand abnormal behavior. So um, it can be done through cross-sectional uh, or longitudinal study. Cross-sectional means that you're looking at one time people who are maybe adolescents and those in their 20s and ones in their 30s and 40s and 50s and so on. Longitudinal, uh, longitudinal means that you're looking at one group, but you're following them for a number of years, like as children, adolescents, 20s, 30s, and so on. So uh, you can see that there's value to, to different, different things, but longitudinal studies are pretty expensive and kind of hard to do. People drop out of these. And so um, if uh, they're very valuable if you can show some influence, but it's, um, it's a really more difficult type of research to do and usually has to be done by a major research university. Prevention research focuses on things like health promotion or positive development or uh, prevention step strategies, trying to prevent certain abnormal behaviors from occurring. If we have a better understanding that this causes um, problems, we try to see if we can prevent it before it does arise. Um, and so now anytime that you're doing an understanding of of different um, uh, behaviors, you have to take in consideration the culture. And again, uh, some parts of the world, uh, behavior that is very uh, accepted there may not be so accepted in the United States. And same things that we do here may not be that well accepted in your country. So um, abnormal behavior is studied worldwide, not just in the United States, but uh, every nation has psychologists, psychiatrists that are, are contributing to the understanding of abnormal psychology in their culture. Um, ethical principles are very important when you're dealing with research because you're dealing with people who are vulnerable to begin with. You know, they're usually suffering from some sort of uh, psychopathology. And so to do something unethical would just uh, make their condition worse. And so one of the ways we do this is we make sure that the, the patient, the subject has understanding of what's going on and that they are not being uh, used against their, their wills to be done in research. Now let's go to uh, chapter four where we start to get in more specifics. In this chapter, we're gonna look at anxiety, trauma, stressor related to obsessive, compulsive and related disorders. So when we talk about this area, what are the similarities between anxiety, fear, and panic attacks? When we talk about anxiety, we're talking about something that's future-oriented. We're fearing about something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, fear can be present-oriented, you know, if you're um, under attack or, you know, you're involved in a 
an accident or something like that. You know, something has happened to you in your present and you're, you're fearful about it. Anxiety, again, is when you're looking uh, at something that has not happened, that you're fearful about it. Um, during this time, our body, through its sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, activates to give us the energy we need to deal with that stressor and then help calms us down after the danger is left. So you may have heard the term panic attack. And what do we mean by that? Uh, a panic attack represents an alarm response uh, of a real fear, but there's really no actual danger, meaning that someone's heart may start beating very fast. They're, you know, they're breathing, they're sweating. They may feel like they're having a heart attack, and that's often the kind of the symptoms that they'll, uh, they'll talk about. And it feels very real to them but there's actually no real danger at that time. Sometimes it can happen unexpectedly, um, meaning that you know it could just be out of the blue. Sometimes it can happen if a person finds themselves in a situation that they know they've had a panic attack before and they may start feeling some of those feelings coming on and they uh, and hopefully remove themselves from that situation. We talk about generalized anxiety disorder. That focuses on minor everyday events that not one major worry, but we have sort of, like I said, a generalized anxiety disorder about everyday kind of minor events that come on. And uh, research shows that there's some genetic contribution to this, psychological contributions to this. And, um, there are treatments for this, uh, sometimes with certain, certain drug treatments, um, but they found that often drug treatments are no more effective than placebo treatments, meaning that they've given one group a certain drug and they've given another control group a, a placebo that has really no medicinal value, and they found that the responses are about the same. Um, and so a lot of times, it's really that psychological therapy of trying to uh, understand what's going on in their real lives and determine what is really a threat and what is not a threat. Um, in panic disorder, it may be accompanied by what is referred to as agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is a fear of situations or avoiding situations where it can be unsafe. And a lot of times this is being out in public where you're fearful of being away from your home. You're, you know, you're not sure if you can, um, you know, your, your, all your, your safety uh, ideas and things that you do for your safety are in your home. And when you leave that home, you leave your, your safety zone. And so um, sometimes people can have this and not have panic attacks, but sometimes they can have agoraphobia and panic attacks. So, um, you know, we all have a disposition or vulnerability to stress. Everybody can be stressed at some time in life. Even the, you know, the, the coolest, calmest person you know can uh, have a neurobiological reaction to stress. A car pulls out in front of you, you know, an animal jumps in front of you and barks or snarls or a snake, you know, 
looks like it's going to bite you. Um, and uh, so that's, um, we all have that, and it's called our sympathetic nervous system. Um, what's happened a lot of times, though, when people who have panic attacks, they, you know, experience this, they've been told they have a panic attack, and then, you know, that nothing is physically wrong with them. So guess what? They come back and then they have anxiety about having a panic attack. So it kind of feeds itself, this loop that keeps on going. Um, but they found that both drug and psychological treatments have helped people who are dealing with panic disorder and agoraphobia. Um, some, one method is called panic control treatment. And what this does is it um, exposes the patient or the individual to clusters of sensations that remind them of the panic attacks, meaning the environment that they've been in to have the panic attack. And so what they may do is the, the, the counselor or therapist may show them pictures of that place, not actually going there yet, and you know, and allow them to do breathing exercises, relaxation exercises. Then they may actually go and look at the place in the distance and then just slowly, gradually uh, re-enter that situation, environment, and to show that they actually have some ability to control this. Sometimes we have specific phobias, and um, we've, um, you know, this is where you're fearful of a particular object or a particular situation, such as maybe a fear of heights or fear of water or fear of speaking or fear of snakes or, or spiders or something like that. Um, you can have this because maybe you were, um, you experienced this and it was a very stressful event. And so you've learned to be uh, scared of this particular object. You were bit by a dog as a child. Well, what happens is you learn this. And if you've learned something, you can actually uh, unlearn it as well. And so, again, what you do is you systematically expose the person to this phobia. And if it's, for example, a fear of heights, you may just, um, you know, look at videos of people being on high objects. And um, you can then slowly just work with that patient so they're able to uh, face that fear without the, the response that they had previously. Social anxiety disorder or social phobia is really the idea of the fear of being around others, particularly situations where you have to have some sort of performance in front of other people. And this happens, you know, with athletes or uh, artists or performers of some sort where you have to, people are watching you do something. Um, the, um, it's, what the treatment usually is for this is rehearsing, role-playing that, um, where you're able to practice that situation before you actually go out there. And, um, and sometimes they find that certain drug treatments have been effective as well. We probably are very familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder. And what this involves is focuses on avoiding thoughts or images of past traumatic experiences. There's actually been a traumatic experience that has brought on the PTSD. 
So it could be someone that's been in the military or law enforcement, but it can be a variety of different occupations and situations. Something that um, uh, has happened, a tra traumatic event that's happened to your life. Um, but it's really though the intensity of that experience seems to be a factor when someone reacts. So there different people have been through uh, you know, situations where they've um, been very scared, but not everyone that's been shot at or, or been a victim of a crime develops PTSD. Certain people have, have had PTSD because that experience was um, subjectively more traumatic for them. Um, there may be various reasons why. Um, doesn't mean that you're less tough or something like that, but sometimes there's biological vulnerabilities or sometimes our society and cultural influences have a role to play. So treatment for PTSD involves um, re-exposing the victim to the trauma. And again, some of the means that we talked about earlier in a safe way and um, really establishing a sense of safety and uh, where they can also feel like they have more control in reactions to events that remind them of that traumatic uh, event. Um, different other trauma and stress-related disorders are adjustment disorders, and um, it's really the development of anxiety or depression in response to stressful but not traumatic life events, meaning that things that any change that happens in life, change can be stressful, even if it's good change, but it may be something that, you know, you you've gotten married or you've had children or you changed jobs or lost a job or a variety of different things. And that can lead to adjustment disorder. Um, children experiencing inadequate or abusive or absent caregiving in early childhood can form uh, attachment disorders. And that means that they're not able to connect with uh, caregivers as well. And this comes in two forms. One is reactive attachment disorder. And these are children that have really been, um, who are unable to form attachments with caregivers or parents or others that are, you know, around them and um, they're inhibited, they're emotionally withdrawn from uh, the caregivers. Disinhibited social engagement means children who inappropriately approach all strangers and that they will go up to people that they don't even know and be vulnerable and uh, willing to follow or you know, be held. There's, there's a balance there between um, being uh, somewhat with wary of strangers and uh, also being close to your caregivers. Obsessive compulsive disorder focuses on obsessive thoughts. That's the obsession part is thoughts where you, things that you feel are frightening or repulsive, you know, these kind of come in your mind and intrusive. And we deal with that by our ritualistic behavior uh, that's the compulsion part. So you try to deal with these obsessive thoughts through compulsive behaviors. Um, so 
certain biological, psychological vulnerabilities seem to be contributing to development of OCD. And uh, those who've been treated with drugs really have modest success. Um, there seems to be um, a treatment that's uh, most successful is called exposure and rit ritual prevention. More of a counselor therapist, you know, works with uh, the, the patient in therapy. Body dysmorphic disorder is when a person looks normal, but they're obsessively preoccupied with some imagined defect in their appearance. They feel like they're ugly, they're not uh, pretty enough, they're not strong enough or big enough. And really they, they're things, they seek out like plastic surgery that are not, is not really necessary to try to improve their appearance in their eyes. Um, usually this is treated more through psychological treatment. And uh, so certain uh, physicians or plastic surgeons may actually have their people approach them for this, uh, for surgery, go through this, try a treatment, especially if they're fearful that this patient may have body dysmorphic disorder. Other disorders we've seen, like on television shows, hoarding disorders, where you have an excessive accumulation of things, things that really uh, people have the inability to release, to get rid of, and uh, just clutter that uh, is taking over their lives. Um, that's um, really the treatment for this is similar to OCD, but it seems to be less successful than treatment for OCD. Another type of disorder, compulsive disorder, is hair pulling um, and, um, or skin. Um, and we call it the hair pulling is trichotillomania. And that's um, uh, where you start pulling your hair and, and uh, sometimes uh, eating it or doing something with it. And you'll see, you know, people, uh, usually more adolescents or children might have this and or excoriation where you pick at the skin. Well, that ends unit two, and I look forward to being with you in unit three.